All right, thank you, music team. I have a thank you card here from the Gerald family that Larry handed to me. It says, church family, thank you so much for the outpouring of love that has been shown to us during the homegoing of our mother. Mom loved her, her church family of whom she was a part of since the beginning. By the way, she was one of our founding members. Apart, uh, he says, your prayers and provision of food was much appreciated. Thank you so much, the Gerald family. So thank you, Larry, and your family. We had a great service with uh, Miss Gerald, so we're thankful for her. She's in heaven this morning, by the way, seeing Jesus. Wouldn't that be an incredible sight? You talk about revival. Now, that would uh, meditating on that would bring about revival for sure. By the way, this Sunday night at 5 o'clock, we're in the book of Revelation. If you haven't been thus far, it's not too late. We're in chapter 13 tonight. We're going to talk about the Antichrist, the false prophet, and the beast out of the sea. What does that mean? I mean, so come tonight. We have a time for questions. You can ask whatever you'd like. And uh, hopefully that's a blessing to our people. And it teaches us about what God's plan is for our future. Well, I have a lot to cover this morning, and uh, I read a story this week that might encapsulate this. There was a pastor known for his lengthy sermons, and a man got up and left during the middle of one of his messages, and the man returned, so the pastor asked where he went. He said, I went to get a haircut. This pastor said, well, why didn't you do that before the service? He said, because I didn't need one then. Now, hopefully today's message is not that long, but nevertheless, you can see I'm covering from chapter 30, verse 25, all the way to the end of chapter 31. So I'm not going to read it to you. It takes 12 minutes and 50 seconds. I've done it three times this week to get through that. But what I'm going to do is break this passage down and hopefully make it meaningful to your life and teach you a lesson or a few truths about God and his nature. Now, you know the story. I've been going through Genesis, and now we're in a section where God is leaving Jacob. Jacob the trickster, Jacob the rascal. Jacob had a conflict with his brother. His mother and father were showing favoritism. There's all kinds of problems in the home. He lies to his dad, cheats his brother. Next thing you know, he's taken out of the land. He goes to his uncle Laban's territory where he goes to marry this woman that he loves. Lo and behold, she's beautiful. But when he serves seven years to marry her, the night of the wedding, the father does the reversal trick on him. It's not the younger for the older. Now it's the older for the younger. And so he ends up marrying Leah. He ends up having to serve another seven years. Rachel becomes his wife. We saw last week that Leah, the unloved, is the one who's fruitful and has all the children. Rachel cannot have children. There's all kinds of rivalry in between the two brides. They decide to go outside the marriage to their handmaids. And all you have is a bunch of children and a passive Jacob. Well, he's really not passive, but Jacob, he's just got a whole house full now. And now he's been around for over 14 years. And he has nothing to his name except two wives, two concubines, and 12 kids. And now he's in a family dilemma. He wants to leave. He actually goes to Jacob and says, I need to start providing for my own family. I need to go back to the land where God called me to go. He's trapped in a family business now, and he can't leave. Now, what do you do when you're in a situation like that, stuck in a family business? I did a little bit of research this week on family businesses. Did you know that only 30% of family businesses survive into the second generation? That means that 70% of family businesses, the family loses control. The assets and the relationships are potentially destroyed. Family businesses can go under for many reasons, including conflicts over money, poor management, and fighting about the succession of power from one generation to the next. But there are typically some common fault lines that lead to family business breakdowns. First of all, a lack of trust among the members. Second, No communication or poor communication is responsible for 60% of family failures. By the way, I could say this, it's responsible for more percentage of that for marriage failures. We don't communicate with each other. Many family businesses lack a sense of shared purpose. 
Family members too often avoid tough issues by avoiding meaningful conversations. Left unaddressed, one person writes, these tensions increase distrust in families and obstruct performance in their organizations. However, with the right skills, they go on to write, high trust relationships and structures in place, such breakdowns can be overcome. So what are some of the things that help family businesses survive? First of all, building trust with one another. Second, instilling a shared purpose of the family business. Third, establishing effective communication. And fourth, develop decision-making processes that take power, family dynamics, and business priorities into consideration. By the way, that was in the Harvard Review, I think, is where I found that, and I thought it was very helpful. But when you turn to Genesis chapter 30 and 31, Jacob did not have too much of a choice. He wasn't able to read the Harvard Review and figure out good ways to communicate with Uncle Laban because wasn't much communication with him. But what we learn through this story, and this is very applicable to our life, is simply this. This, this whole section and this whole story is about God's faithfulness to Jacob. God is using problems in this man's life to make in him and create in him a worthy partner. I mean, God is breaking this man. And you know, sometimes some of us, I, I speak with myself here in mind, sometimes God has to drag us over a pretty rocky, rough road to teach us lessons, doesn't he? And Jacob is going to have to spend 20 years of his life to learn what it means to finally submit to God. And we're not finished, by the way. I have four or five more messages here, and I've kind of laid them out, okay? This is two messages in one. Uh, I should have broke this down into two. I'll make that confession. The first is working in a family business, and the second is confronting a family member. Now, if you want to hear the message on confronting a family member, tell me and I'll preach it. But they're kind of combined here, okay? But God is faithful to do what he promises that he will do. He's going to bring Jacob back and he's going to bless him. But he doesn't tell him how long and through what circumstances. So this morning what we're going to do uh, is read a passage and then look at some truths that God can use in our life. So this is like the climax of the passage. Jacob talking to his father-in-law Laban about how he has cheated him, yet God has been with him. Genesis 31, starting in verse 38. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from me from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Now here is a basic synopsis of this story in nutshell form. Jacob approaches Laban. They work out a deal that Laban will give Jacob the week of the flock. Jacob is the one who suggested this. Laban liked it, of course. So Jacob decides that he's going to take Laban's flocks, breed them, and he will take the offshoots. And Laban can have the solid color. So anything mixed or speckled, Jacob will take. Anything solid, Laban will take. Well, Jacob, up to his normal tricky ways, decides to try to get one over on Laban by peeling some sticks. But unbeknownst to him, after the agreement was made, Laban went in and pulled out all the spotted and streaked animals put them with his sons, and ran them three miles away. You don't fool with Uncle Laban, by the way. He's a shrewd guy. So here's Jacob with just a very few spotted and streaked animals. So he peels 
the Laban, this is in the Hebrew, that's literally when he says it peeled the white streaks, that is a play on the word Laban. They're both the same. Jacob still hasn't changed. But in spite of him trying to do his tricks by laying down these sticks in front of the animals when they breed, God is going to bless Jacob anyway. And credit is given to God. So what happens? The family becomes extremely jealous. The brothers turn against Jacob. Laban turns against Jacob. And the next thing you know, Jacob has to run for his life. He convinces his wives that his father, their father is no longer favorable toward him, that he must go, that God appeared to him and told him it was time to leave the land. And the next thing you know, he takes off and leaves and Laban gets so angry, he chases him for seven days. And he's saying to himself, when I find him, I'm going to kill him. But, as only God can do, he appeared to Laban in a dream the night before he caught Jacob. And this is what God said to him. Don't say anything either good or bad. Don't you dare touch him. So when Laban catches Jacob, they, they get into a heated confrontation. And they make a covenant that people sometimes put up on their kitchen. And let me assure you, when it says, may God watch between you and me, that is not a covenant of blessing. They didn't trust each other as far as you could throw a bull by the tail. So they put that covenant up and said, if you come across this side to do harm to me, I'll kill you. And if I go across that side to do, you can kill me. And may God be witness. And so then they go their separate ways. So that's the summary of the story. Now let's look at six obstacles that Jacob faced that maybe you're facing this morning. And then we're going to see some hope because... God's presence is always there in our problems. Did you know that? He is, he's there in our problems. So what are six obstacles that Jacob had to face uh, in order to leave this, quote, family business? Obstacle number one, he had to relocate his family in order to follow God's leading. Relocate his family to follow God's leading. On a practical note, how many times has God ever burdened your heart to do something and your family thought you were crazy? Maybe it's switching a job. Maybe it's marrying someone that your family didn't approve of. And by the way, there needs to be wisdom here, so let me be very cautious. But humans are not always omniscient. Sometimes we think we know the best, but sometimes God knows the best, and sometimes we have to be quiet and humble ourselves and listen. But nevertheless, God had appeared to Jacob and told him, you are going to go back to the land that I want you to go to. But his family didn't want him to go. I'm going to start reading the passage here in Genesis chapter 30, starting in verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination. By the way, there is a textual problem here. If you have a good Bible, it will alert you to this. He's either learned by divination that the Lord has blessed him, or he has learned by becoming rich that the Lord has blessed him. So there's a little problem, but either way, God made it known to him that he was blessed because of Jacob's presence. And then in chapter 31, verse 43, Laban answers Jacob and said to him, The daughters are my daughters. The children are my children. The flocks are my flocks. You all like how the father-in-law now is breaking this out? Everything you own, Jacob, is mine. My, my, my. And all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? So Jacob faced the first obstacle of trying to leave. And Laban did not want him to. There's a second obstacle he faced and that was negotiating with a dishonest family. Now by the way, have you ever tried to do business with somebody who is underhanded? That is not very nice. And Jacob here is going to be faced with dealing with a liar. Just like himself, by the way. And when you face yourself, sometimes it's very hard. Did you know that? Notice this in chapter 30, verse 28. Name your wages, Laban tells Jacob, and I will give it. 
Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me, for you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. And the Lord has blessed you wherever I have turned. But now when shall I provide for my own household? He said, What shall I give you? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. By the way, there's a good principle in family relations. Don't take anything. Earn it. Jacob knew if Laban gave him something, he was going to be in trouble. This is why Abraham would not take the spoils when he rescued Lot. God told him, don't take anything, earn what you get. You will not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all of your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and the black among the lambs, if it's found with me, shall be counted as stolen. And Laban said, good, good deal. He stuck his hand out, good. Let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, everyone that had white on it. By the way, in Hebrew, that's the word Laban. Laban and Laban. Everyone that had Laban on it, he removed them and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons and set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of the flock. He's in a helpless situation, basically. How's he going to provide for his family when his father-in-law are taking out everything that was supposed to be the breeders? Well, the answer is God. And that's exactly what happened. Further on in the passage, you know I have served your father with all my strength. This is later on down when Jacob's convincing his wives he needs to leave. You know I've served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. You all see in what's happening? Laban was trying to cheat Jacob. Jacob was trying to connive his own way to make it happen. But every time it got switched, God was still blessing Jacob in spite of his Jacob. It's an interesting, fascinating story. And then we just read this. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I have served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. Jacob had some obstacles. Notice the third obstacle. He had to overcome the jealousy and the envy of his in-laws. Now, by the way, can you imagine being in a family business and God prospering you and your family becoming jealous? And accusing you of all kinds of issues. I mean, you're talking about some problems here. I mean, there is no problem like a family problem. But here, Jacob faces this. Notice what happened in chapter 31. Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And notice this, and Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor anymore. You know, there comes a point in time when the Thanksgiving turkey doesn't taste as good as it used to around the table. And that's what was happening in this situation. Jacob goes and talks to his wives and says, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. So here are obstacles that Jacob was facing. There's a fourth obstacle, and that was the obstacle of does he fear God more than he does his family? 
Is he going to obey God and what God told him to do? Or is he out of fear going to do what his family pressured him to do? And by the way, this is a struggle. Notice the passage, 31 verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, all the flocks bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock that are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. By the way, isn't that interesting? All the time he was being cheated, the angel of the Lord said, I see everything he's doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now just a little theology here. This is the angel of the Lord speaking. And what does the angel of the Lord say? I am the God of Bethel. The angel of the Lord is the God of Bethel. What does that mean? Who is the angel of the Lord? We could have some fun here, couldn't we? If we were in theology class, we could. But let me assure you that the angel of the Lord was a person of the Godhead known as none other than Jesus himself. And so here's our Lord Jesus telling Jacob, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise and go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So Jacob was faced with this issue. Does he fear God and go where the angel tells him? Or does he fear his family? And then on another note, Jacob faced the obstacle of having some deception in his own home that he didn't know about. In other words, his lovely, beautiful wife Rachel, you know, the one that was hot dog, drop dead gorgeous, was a tricky thief. And she was just like Jacob. She loved to lie. And she was good at it. She was mad at her father because he took her dowry money and spent it. And so she decided that she was going to steal his household gods who were believed to give prosperity and blessing and protection so she went into Laban's house and she stole her father's household gods and she took them with her and she did not tell Jacob. Now Jacob got so mad when Laban accused him of stealing his household gods that Jacob made a rash statement and said, With whoever you find the stolen goods, they shall die this day. Now can't you imagine? So when Laban catches Jacob... And he starts searching through all the tents to find the household gods. Guess who had them? Rachel. But she hid them under a camel, uh, a camel's sack, and told a little fib. I'll let you read the rest of why she gave that excuse. But anyway, she hid them. Sneaky. Notice what the text says. Genesis 31, verse 14. Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do it. Laban has gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, 
He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Further down the passage, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and didn't tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs and tambourine and lyre? And everybody goes, yeah, sure you would have. (laughs) And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It's in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. I'd like to hear what else God had to say to him, wouldn't you? And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have taken that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, but he didn't find them. And when he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods, put them in a camel's saddle, and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent but he didn't find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. Now I'll let everybody else explain that. So he searched, but he didn't find the household gods. She was very sly, wasn't she? So then Jacob, if I was going to read the rest of the passage, got right up in Laban's nose. And he was waiting for this moment. Now, get this. This is the grace of God, folks. The grace of God. Can you imagine if Laban had found those household gods, how the Bible story would have turned? But God even allowed deception and lies in the covenant family's home, and he still protected them. Now, I know this doesn't match our moral Sunday school stories, but nevertheless... This is how God works with sinful people. And he allowed Rachel and Jacob both to be ignorant, deceived, and all kinds of issues going on, and God never quit working with his family. That is an amazing hope, isn't it? But notice the last part that Jacob had to work through, and that was he had to establish separation and boundaries in his family. And by the way, every healthy, every healthy relationship has to have some kind of a boundary. Uh, Some have to have greater boundaries than others. As the old farmer said, high fences make good neighbors. And sometimes that's very true. But notice what happens. After Laban catches Jacob, they have this exchange about the household gods. Now they've decided they can no longer live with each other. Jacob has to go his way. Laban has to go his way. But Jacob's not out of the woods, by the way. Because what is waiting back at home for him after 20 years? An angry brother who he cheated and a father who he's lied to and deceived. And if I was going to preach this, and I did preach one sermon on four chapters, I entitled it Between a Rock and a Hardhead. What do you do when you're between a rock and a hardhead? And that's where Jacob was. He laid his head on the rock at Bethel and he's between a hardhead Uncle Laban, where's he going to go? Now Laban says, if you come back across this pillar, I'm going to kill you. Jacob has no choice. He has to go confront his sin that he had left unfinished for 20 years. What's he going to do? Back to the passage. Come now and let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones, made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Shadava, but Jacob called it Galead. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galead and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. 
That's what's usually on people's kitchen wall. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. In other words, he left out, I'm going to kill you. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and this pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness. And the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap of this pillar to me to do harm. This is our covenant of boundary right here. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread, spent the night in the hill country. Now that's a long story that I boiled down and gave you two chapters worth just to get to this point. What are four truths? Are y'all with me this morning? Are y'all still there? Okay. What are four truths that we can learn from this huge passage about how God's presence is there with his people during difficulties in life? We all face them. Four truths. Truth number one, and let this sink in, God has a plan for your life and he will fulfill it, but it will be in his time and in his way. I think I can confidently say this this morning, and I think there's evidence from God's word to know that yes, God has a general will for every person's life. Every believer, you fit in the general will of God. The will of God is your sanctification. The will of God is that you be holy. The will of God is that you pray always. The will of God is that you be thankful. Those are general things, issues that God wants us to do. But there are specific things that God calls some to do. And when God puts a burden and a passion in your heart to do something, and it lines up with his word and his ways and his will, and you strive to do that, just because you face hardships, don't stop. Sometimes people think that the will of God means that all the doors are open, you have full peace within your heart, you have settled contentment, there's no difficulties and no problems, nothing but a smooth paved road ahead of you. Come up close, real close. You won't find that anywhere in God's word. As a matter of fact, you find the exact opposite. When you go to do God's will, there will be, as Paul the Apostle said, many adversaries. Many open doors, but many adversaries. When God called Moses to lead the children of Israel out of the promised land, did, were they welcoming to him? Did they want him? Did everybody just follow his lead? They rebelled against him. When David went to be king, what happened? I mean, he had to run from Saul for how many years? Threatened and almost lost his life three times? And yes, my dear friend, he was in God's will. Here is the important lesson. God has a plan for your life. And when God has a plan for your life, when hardship and obstacles and problems come, don't quit just because it gets hard. Don't give up. We have to see God's presence in our life, even and especially, I should say, especially when times get difficult. You know, sometimes God allows us to be lonely to teach us lessons in life. Did you know that? Sometimes God causes us to be isolated. Sometimes God causes us to be the opposite of all the people we're around to teach us dependence upon him. You ever been to a job where you weren't like the rest of your co-workers? I mean, where there's a change in your life and you don't do what other people did and they shun you and make fun of you and think you're weird because you don't fit in? You ever felt like that? And sometimes we think, well, this must not be God's will because life's getting hard. Oh no, that's God's will. And that's God's presence right there in the midst of it. Carrying you and pushing you through until God fulfills his plan in your life. And that's exactly what he was teaching Jacob. Back at Bethel, God said, I will be with you and I will bring you into this land. After 20 years, the angel of the Lord reappeared to Jacob right when he was in the crux of his problem. 
And the angel of the Lord told him, I am the one who has blessed you, and I will be with you, and I will take you back to Bethel. Twenty years. Don't give up when life gets hard. See God's presence there. A second truth that we learn is this. God is with us, protecting us, and guiding us through life's difficulties. I'm going to read a few of these verses. Chapter 31, verse 3, I did not put them on the screen. The text says, Return to the land of your father, to your kindred, and I will be with you. Verse 5, I see that your father does not regard me, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 24, But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful, do not say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. God was with not only Jacob, but he was present with his enemies. And by the way, that passage always interests me. How many times have you imagined when someone had it out for you that God would go before you and do something in their life to prevent them from doing you harm or danger. I mean, this is the God of the Bible, by the way. If you've never read the story of Haman in the book of Esther, where Haman went and built a gallow for Mordecai and was going to kill him, and the next day, Mordecai was to be hung up on the gallow. And by the way, God is quote-unquote never mentioned in the book of Esther. If you can read Esther and not find God there, then you haven't read Esther Haman couldn't, or the king could not sleep that night. Well, who do you think gave him a case of insomnia? And, Haman, and the king just happened to want something read to him that would put him to sleep. And I'm, I, I'm surprised he didn't turn to a sermon, aren't you? It's amazing how they can put you to sleep. But they turned to the annals of the king's history, and the king had never heard this story before, but a man named Mordecai, happened to save him from an assassination plot that he never knew about. Just so happened. Really? No, I think that's called the providence of God. And after the king heard about Mordecai, he said, I don't know who this man is. Let me see him. Mordecai came in his presence. Esther came in and said, You know, Mordecai the great man, that's my uncle. And that mean old Haman that you mentioned, he's wanting to hang him up on a gallow tomorrow. And the king got mad. By the way, he allowed Esther into his presence a second time, which normally didn't happen upon fear of death. More presence of God. And then he ended up taking Haman and putting him on the same gallow that he made. The providence and the protection of God. Jacob says here, on numerous occasions, God was with me, God protected me, God blessed me, God guided me. And in the difficulties of life, One of the lessons we learn is that even in the midst of difficulty, God is guiding us. You know, sometimes people will go to go for a job promotion. And you go through an interview and a job promotion and you don't get it. You know the disappointment you feel? I mean we've all we've all been there. We we had this idea in mind that we thought was going to be so good, so wonderful for our life. And for some reason, we didn't get it. And we say, oh God, how could you disappoint me? I love you, I pray to you, I serve you, and now you're not going to let me have my way. Don't you know I'm the fourth member of the Trinity God and you should listen to me? I mean, this is what we do, by the way. And if you're going to treat me like this, God, then I'm, just not, I'm, I'm not even going to serve you anymore. This is our pout party. Let me tell you something, folks. Just give it a few years. Look back on your life and then get down on your knees and thank Almighty God that he turned us away. I could stand up here for an hour and tell you stories in my own life when I just knew what was the will of God. All the doors lined, everything opened just perfect. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, something happened. Something happened and God cut it off. We should learn to thank him for his guidance and protection even when it doesn't go our way. There's a third truth, and that is, and listen to this, folks, and let it soak in. God can be trusted even when we don't understand his ways. Do you think Jacob 
understood how God could allow Laban to cheat him and steal from him and change his wages three times? Do you not think that Jacob was getting a little bit frustrated? Oh, God, you said you were going to be with me. You've let him change my wages ten times and you haven't done one thing to him, God. I mean, after three strikes, you should be out ten times. Notice some of these passages. Chapter 31, verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read here quickly. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Verses, verse 9. The text reads, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Verse 24. I think I read that. God came to Laban in a dream. And then finally in verses 38 and 42, Jacob says, God has taken away your wealth and he's given it to me. He didn't understand this during the process, but after he looked back over it, he realized that God's ways could be trusted. And by the way, we struggle with this sometimes, don't we? Especially, especially when we don't understand what God's doing. In other words, God, how can you allow someone to do me wrong and cheat me and be dishonest? And how do I not get justice right now? And let me help you a little bit with this, okay? God doesn't guarantee you and I that we will see justice in this life. Some of you may have to go to the grave being wronged. But I want you to listen and hear me very closely. God never forgets. He never forgets. God actually has a judgment seat of Christ for believers that do each other wrong and he has a great white throne judgment for unbelievers who do people wrong and they will answer every person will answer for what they have done there will be a reckoning by the way and so if you have to end or leave this life and you don't see justice here on this earth you will see justice but you have to by faith trust God that God will do exactly what he said he will do. And we have to be content with that because this life is not it for the believer, folks. This is just the beginning. But God can be trusted when we don't understand his ways. And then, finally, the fourth truth is this, and boy, it's a blessing. God will never, ever, and I say it again, ever let go of his children. Here is this man, Jacob, the trickster, the liar, the cheat, who marries Rachel, the liar, the deceiver. They're two peas in a pod. And by the way, the story isn't over. Did you know they're going to show favoritism again? And that's what's going to get their, their son Joseph thrown into a pit and hated by his brothers. They haven't learned their lesson. But does God quit on them because they're not sinless? You all look up here. Nope. Does God quit on you because you're not sinless? Nope. Does God keep loving you as his child even though you fail him and you sin and you do what you shouldn't? Yes. Will he ever turn his children away? Absolutely not. But he may take us to the woodshed, but he'll never let us go. I want to read a story to you that a man wrote after I read these two passages. John chapter 6. Uh, let this, just let this soak in for a moment. This is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. And he writes, he says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, can you all help me read that? I will never cast out what does never cast out mean okay good I just want you to see that for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day he, he will lose how many of his he won't lose a one and if you've came to him by faith, believing that his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross was the payment for your sin, and you belong to him, you're his child, 
He won't lose you. Just like he never lost Jacob. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John chapter 10, a few chapters later, Jesus talking about his sheep, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, not even themselves. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He's talking about his people here, his sheep. Do you think that's called eternal security? Do you think that God has the power to keep what belongs to Him? Yes. Yes, He does. And God can be trusted. He can be trusted because He will never, ever, ever let His children go. Man wrote this story. He said it was 1984 and our daughter... Melanie was about to turn six years of age. And all she wanted was for us to take her to the Texas State Fair. We were living in Dallas at the time and didn't want to disappoint her. However, the city had been filled with disturbing reports of young children being snatched while playing in their own backyards. I can still recall reading the Dallas Morning News where a warning was given to all parents who planned on taking their children to the fair. They were instructed to keep their children close at hand and not let them wander off along the midway. So we took it to heart. The fair was an incredibly entertaining event, especially for a six-year-old girl who wanted to jump on every ride and eat everything she could put her hands on. As we ventured down the midway, Melanie would constantly struggle to break free of my grip on her hand. She was first drawn to the Ferris wheel and then to the game of darts and after that to the bumper cars and then to the booth selling cotton candy. She grew increasingly frustrated by my refusal to let her run free. But I assured her again and again that there wasn't the slightest chance that I would ever let go of her hand, no matter how hard or energetically she pulled to break free or how loudly she complained on being kept by my side. Although she was a preoccupious child at six, I don't think she fully grasped my commitment to her as a father. She likely interpreted my refusal to let her run wild as the fearful and anxious strategy of an overly protective and controlling parent whose primary aim was to rob her of the joys she otherwise might have experienced. After more than two hours of this tug of war, Melanie showed no signs of giving up. If anything, her stubborn little six-year-old heart had intensified in the determination to have her way along the midway, her daddy's persistent grip notwithstanding. My question for you is this. What would you have thought of me as a father had I said to her, Fine, I've had enough of your nonsense. If you want to get yourself kidnapped and abused, go ahead. Have at it. I'm done with you. Your refusal to be grateful for my loving protection has worn me down. Spoken in a disillusioned tone as I let go of her hand and watched passively as she wandered into a potentially deadly crowd. I know what you would have thought, <clears throat> as I would have thought of you if you were if it was your child. What an incredibly unloving and weak-willed father you are. I can't believe you alleged devotion to your child and your purported concern for her welfare could so easily dissipate under the pressure that she imposed on you by her whining. What a jerk. If possible, I'd bring charges against you and make sure you suffered the full penal, penal extent of the law. Now listen to what the man writes. I can assure you this one thing. No matter how frustrated or exhausted or disappointed I may have grown with her efforts to break free, nothing in this world could have induced me to let go of her hand. And don't forget, I'm a fallen, selfish, sinful man. Yet my depravity notwithstanding, I would never, by no means ever, let go of my child and release her into a potentially dangerous crowd of strangers. I would be there for her. I am sure you can see where I'm heading with this. If I, being evil, am committed to the ultimate safety and welfare of my child, how much more do you think your Heavenly Father, being good, is committed to yours? And have you wondered why when you're yanking and pulling and tugging, God never lets go? You want to know why? 
because he loves you. And he's got a plan for your life. And he's going to fulfill his plan in your life, even in the midst of our misunderstanding. He's forming you into the image of his son. And the best thing that we can do is to loosen our arms and say, Lord, I'm yours. Take me where you will. I will follow. Are you willing to do that this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Heads bowed and eyes closed. So this morning, I don't know what's going on in your life, but the Holy Spirit does. And whatever problem or pain, whatever issue that you're facing, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I want you to know that God has a reason for this and a purpose for this. And He teaches us through difficulties and problems in our life. And sometimes God even leads us in the difficulties to teach us lessons about who we are and who He is. But He is always our guiding strength and His presence never leaves His children. So if you're in the midst of a struggle this morning, I think what God is waiting on you to do is to cry out to Him and to tell Him you're willing to let go. And stop pulling your hand to try to do it your way. And to let him lead. Even if it's painful. So I'd like to give you a moment just to talk to the Lord about that. And so Father, I pray that you would hear all of our prayers. And teach us a lesson just like Jacob. That sometimes you lead us in difficult paths that cause us to walk with you. So help us to, as this father did to his daughter, help us to see your unfailing grip that you'll never let go of us. And we thank you for that. And we give you praise and we give you that in our life so that you may lead us. But if there's anyone here today, Father, that doesn't know Jesus as Savior, I pray that you would impress upon their heart the need to deal with their sin issue that separates them from you and give them the, the grace that they need to believe on Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for their sin debt that they could never pay on their own. May they receive that free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ, so that their eternal life and eternal security would be sure. Open their hearts and give them the grace to believe, we do pray, and help them to follow that prompting. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.